Hello and welcome to the Talking Mortality podcast. This is episode 8. My name is Dr. Calvin Lightbody, an emergency medicine consultant working in the United Kingdom National Health Service. This is following on from the previous episode and it's called A Focus on Frailty Part 2, this time focusing on aspects of frailty in an acute hospital. I'm joined for this discussion by Dr. Helen McKee, a consultant in geriatric medicine and hospital colleague of mine. Helen has developed a specialist interest in frailty with a focus on delivering care for older patients both on the front line of the health service in A&E and also taking hospital care to the patient's own home in a service we'll hear about during this episode. We'll be discussing frailty in terms of patients who for one reason or another end up in hospital and how their particular care needs can be best met not necessarily in the hospital. Helen also shares her experiences when it comes to frail patients who are approaching the end of life and how she uses an open, honest and realistic approach which, as you'll shortly hear, she relates with consideration, compassion and wisdom. So, without further delay, I bring you Dr Helen McKee and the Focus on Frailty, Part 2. Hi, I'm here with Helen McKee. Helen, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Helen, you are a consultant geriatrician. Uh, perhaps you could just start by telling us a wee bit about what that is and, and what you do here in the hospital. Sure, yes. So I'm a, a geriatrician, so a, a care of the elderly consultant here at Here Myers. And I look after older people who come into hospital and I see them in a, a range of different settings. I do some acute geriatrics, so front door work um, and hospital home, which I'll talk more about. I also have a re- rehabilitation ward and I do some vascular liaison. And in all these different settings, I work with uh, a wider multidisciplinary team. Okay. So in the last episode, I was speaking to GP Dr. Paul Bond uh, about frailty and about the implications for, for that in the community. In terms of what you deal with here in the hospital, is your like, definition or approach to frailty any different? Um, it, there's some similarities and some differences. Um, the definition itself, I think, would be fairly similar to what he discussed. So... It, a frailty is a distinctive health state um, and it's usually but not exclusively related to ageing and it's where the body loses its inbuilt reserves which makes that person more vulnerable and more dependent. Um, there's two main models to describe it and one is the phenotype model which focuses more on physicality so talks about uh, unexpected weight loss um, muscle strength loss, so that's known as sarcopenia, which is an area of increased research interest, um, changing gait, so slowness in walking, loss of balance and, and loss of energy. The other model, which is probably what we refer to more in hospital because it's a bit more holistic, is the cumulative model, and that looks at a variety of different factors such as symptoms, such as um, loss of appetite or low mood, signs such as a tremor or loss of fluency in speech and also diseases such as dementia and it also looks at cognition, at psychological factors, at social factors so it's more all-encompassing and more holistic. Um, maybe one of the main differences in frailty in the community and in hospital is that, that we probably see more of the tip of the iceberg so the people we see who come in are probably more the severe end of the spectrum because that's um, why they've come to hospital because they, they are have advanced frailty and they've decompensated and, and been admitted. 
it's probably quite important to say and to stress, and I, th- I think this was mentioned before, about the age not being um, always the case for frailty. So you can you can lead a, a healthy life and get to a, a good age and not be frail, um, although it's more common that as you get older you're frail. And maybe to illustrate this, I recently had a gentleman who was 103 hmm. who looked after his daughter. She had advan- additional learning needs and she was supported by him. He cooked for her and he did light housework. And he had some illnesses um, and at most maybe was mildly frail but was, was managing functionally fairly well. And yet the same week I looked after a lady in her mid-60s who had severe frailty and she was chair-bound because of advanced lung disease and joint problems and had lots of support. So she was quite dependent despite being 30 years junior to this other gentleman. So So age is a a factor, but there's a correlation perhaps, but by no means is frailty closely linked with age yes that's fair to say yes, so that, that, that notion of vulnerability that susceptibility to infection or a deterioration of some kind is more what you would see then in the hospital the fact that the patient's already vulnerable and then something else has happened is that yes. what you see yes okay so why is, it, why is it important to identify frailty as an issue so it is really important for a variety of reasons um, there's there's several identified risk factors and there is something we can do with them. If you're, if you're diagnosed with frailty, especially with the more advanced side of the spectrum, um, prognosis is not good. But there's still possibility there to try and um, halt the progression. And, and they're, they're the, the basic things that we see with, with many other um, chronic diseases, so, so diet and exercise have got a big part to play. Probably exercise more than diet, and the evidence is, is, comes out that resistance training is um, the most effective type of exercise to do. But without getting to the minutiae there, stay, staying active is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important for a lot of different reasons for older people and frail older people, certainly. Um, and sometimes perhaps as a society we're a bit risk adverse and are uh, keen to avoid a fall and tell somebody that we're worried about not to get up, not, not to get out of the chair, not to get out of the bed. Um, and sometimes that's, that's the right thing, but it's not always the right thing. And actually that can um, be detrimental because that person could lose muscle strength, as well as the cognitive side of things when people can get quite low from, from, from being chair or bed bound so um, exercise is, is an important part of, of discussions and trying to keep this person active physically and socially diet so common things being common just a, a well balanced diet full of nutrients and vitamins vitamin D has got a, a role in frailty so it's, it's always important to be thinking about these, these basic lifestyles of modifications and also I would say identifying frailty is important on an individual level because there's maybe a bit of misconception um, in the public about frailty. It's a bit of a non-specific term. It's been used more, but it's still there's perhaps a bit of uncertainty, and, and maybe people don't actually realise that the impact of being frail, especially if it's moderate, severe side of things, and that life expectancy is reduced in the same way if you had a cancer or an advanced long-term condition. And so there's an honesty there with identifying it and discussing it with the individual and their families so that they can plan, not only are we planning 
what we think we can help with their health and their social network, but they can make their own plans with regards to their home and their finances and how they want to spend time, who they want to spend it with, where they want to spend it. Okay, so you mentioned a, a few things there with regards to the, the importance of identification, but I guess if you're telling somebody maybe for the first time that you know, frailty is something they have, it's a, it's a diagnosis, um, when you're explaining that to them, how do you find that conversation goes? It can be difficult because even if you talk about ageing, elderly and older person, these terms are not always um, particularly well liked. And frailty is a difficult one because the person's losing some of their abilities and their independence and that can be quite hard to hear even if everyone else around about, it see, uh, around about them sees it happening. So it, it, it can be difficult, but we, you know, we, we try and set the scene and talk about um, you know, the lead up and, and, and also just important to ask the person and, and the, the, their, their family or their carers how they see things and, and what they describe might be quite obviously a frail person. And so it's just kind of taking their lead. Yeah. So does it come as a shock then sometimes whenever you tell someone perhaps for the first it time? It can do, it can do. You need to be careful to how you go about it and not, not to be insulting um, but it can come as a shock because sometimes it, it, although everybody else sees it, it's not actually been addressed it's just never really been discussed and we all we all see this person that's feeling we wouldn't be surprised if maybe they didn't survive for it after a year or two but it's never been you know mm-hmm. actually so it's very much by by the individual by their own circumstances and what's been happening perhaps in the months leading up to, yes, to you and there'll be markers there to see that mm-hmm. this, this is probably only going in one yeah. direction I, I guess the other message is that frailty is not necessarily just a one way street I mean you, you talked about you can reverse some of the changes with frailty is that is that still the case for the patients that so you would see I, I th- the, the, unfortunately the vast majority of the time it it, it it probably is going to continue continue to deteriorate by the time I th- you see I, them Certainly, by the time we see a lot of 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 frail people, because, like I've said, they've come to a point where all these different cumulative factors have accumulated and they've decompensated. Um, but there's still things that we can do to try and um, uh, maybe not reverse things necessarily, but to try and halt progression. I think um, there is a lot of research and discussion around perhaps a milder side of things and trying to intervene earlier and, th- and that's maybe where there's more mm-hmm. um, evidence for prevent, you know, preventing um, pre- progression and, and maybe even you know trying to reverse a degree okay. of the frailty. Sure. So Helen, we know each other from, from working in the same hospital but I also yeah. know that you come to, to the NE where I work on a regular basis to do some work you know, right at the front door with patients who perhaps have frailty. Could you tell us a wee bit more about your involvement there? So older people will, are not designed for a hospital environment a lot of the time. Um, they're more at risk of hos- hospital-acquired infections, of bed sores, of reduced muscle strength, of falls, of a cognitive decline, of increased uh, dependency, of increased institutionalisation, of, in- of longer bed weights and discharge delays. And... So all of these reasons um, have sort of pushed um, looking at other ways to manage people and um, we're lucky in here in Myers that we have a couple of different options. Um, Frailty at the Front Door, which has been running um, for a few years now, is something I'm involved with and it's, it's, it's very rewarding. I work alongside other geriatricians who offer um, input every weekday alongside 
uh, acute care of the elderly nurses. So that's our uh, team of highly skilled, skilled care of the elderly nurses. And we do inreach in any departments. And our, the idea here is um, seeing the right people in the right place at the right time. So a e is a noisy, unfamiliar, unfamiliar environment for anybody. Older people often have the longer waits, and this is a really bad start to the hospital journey if they're sitting in a trolley for hours on end. So our team come, comes in to assess these people who we identify as frail, and will will try and come up with management plans where either the person can be discharged home with follow-up, either hospital home, which I'll talk about further, or different primary care services. Mm-hmm. Or they come straight to one of our care of the elderly wards if we have beds. And this avoids multiple bed moves, which can be really detrimental and feed into some of the problems I spoke about. So it, it, it's, it's, it's a relatively new programme, but we've got a lot, a relatively new service, but we've got a lot of data to, to support its value. We're screening people earlier for frailty. We're doing comprehensive geriatric assessment earlier. We're, we've increased ED discharges. We've improved flow to care of the elderly wards, so um, brought people directly quicker, and um, we're using hospital home more, and this has come with without an increase in readmissions. So we, we see a, a wide variety of patients at the front door with um, different illnesses, um, many with delirium, so an acute confusional state, and it can be really satisfying not having mm-hmm. to necessarily mm-hmm. bring these patients in, mm-hmm. or if we do, at least we're getting our special input yeah, earlier. Yeah, so it's, you, you clearly described that it's, it's so much better for the patient perhaps to be cared for in their own home and you described really well I thought the the harms that can happen to patients when if they are brought into hospital and perhaps there's a, a better alternative to that. Uh, so you mentioned the hospital at home and, and that's about delivering hospital care in the patient's own home. Can you tell us a wee bit about what's involved there? Sure, so we've been running hospital home for five years now we see about 90 patients a month and manage to keep around 80% at home. And we have a, a fabulous team of multi-skilled individuals who've come from a variety of backgrounds, such as occupational therapy, physiotherapy, specialist nurses. And we, they work alongside with genetic support workers and every day in a, an acute, uh, uh, sorry, a consultant geriatrician. And we see people who are unwell at home, and the idea here is that they're unwell enough to need to come into hospital. So we're not trying to take over GP's work. We're, these, are, these are individuals who, are, who would need to come in, often elderly, often frail. And we manage them at home. We can do a variety of things at home to try and manage them, similar to as, as if they came into hospital. And we, again, have, have really good outcomes, um, anecdotally and otherwise. And it's it's for example this week I, I saw a lady in her late 80s who had a, a good going chest infection and she'd taken to bed and normally she was functionally not too bad she didn't have carers um, she managed around her own home environment um, but she, she really was not managing to eat or drink much and she'd become um, off her feet so she'd lost balance and she was um, you know, unwell we saw her, we gave her IV fluids and antibiotics the first couple of days and we also looked at the functional side of things and arranged for a commode so she could use the toilet in her bedroom not have to walk as far and walking needs. And within 24 hours she'd, she'd improved 
um, and you know, a couple of days later, she, she's nearly back, back to her normal self and managed to eat and drink, moving easier. And we've saved her having to come in to a new environment, which might have actually set her back in some respects. That same day, um, so on Tuesday afternoon, I saw a gentleman with a florid delirium. So this was had come on acutely. His niece had returned from her holiday and it was a different man she saw. He had left a sheltered house in his pyjamas and was very disorientated, having not been disorientated before. And our team um, was able to assess this gentleman for um, reversible causes of delirium and link in with social work on an urgent basis to try and organise a packet of care to maintain him at home. And this is, this is an example of, of, of care where we're, we're, we're hopefully preventing further harms because a, a gentleman with delirium coming into an unfamiliar environment may well get worse, worse in that respect although obviously we, we, would be, we, would, we would be doing X, Y and Z to improve things so these are kind of two examples just this week mm. where quite different situations mm. but hospital homes being beneficial Yes, but you're doing some really brilliant work there and you know, the cases you just described may show some of the excellent results you can get from, from keeping patients at home it's fantastic work I want to just move on a little bit and we're going to talk a bit about patients who are maybe more at the at the severe end of frailty and are maybe more thinking about pre- approaching the end of life. Sure. Um, how do you recognise when somebody with severe frailty is now at the point where they're approaching the end of life? How, how do you look at that or how do you recognise that? So often we can see it coming and we've spoken about this just earlier about um, perhaps the current admissions or... Um, you know, it's, it's, it can often be the, the, the mildest things that really cause a person to become destabilised and require admission. And this is often a sign that things are advancing. Um, they may be struggling to talk clearly, to swallow properly. Their, their movements will be slowed. It's, it's, it's quite a lot of general things in the context of all the other things discussed in the cumulative model. And, and that would be somebody we would be um, thinking about anticipated care planning and how we how we approach maybe near nearer end of life stage mm-hmm. so a few episodes ago i spoke to dr karen harvey a palliative care doctor is there a rule for for a more palliative approach do you think in, in frailty or in your experience with managing patients who are approaching the end of life or do you do you do things differently perhaps it's, it's a difficult one. I actually asked that question to a palliative care doctor recently if we should be referring to palliative care more um, as um, care of the elderly and general medical doctors with someone with frailty. And, and the answer was perhaps, but I think a lot of the time um, we're, we're hopefully doing the, the right things. It, it's treating the, the, the easily reversible without causing too much in the way of harm, avoiding unnecessary interventions and investigations and then focusing on symptom control and I think in care of the elderly we're hopefully fairly good at palliative mm-hmm. care or, or, or supportive mm-hmm. care towards the end and if and if we had concerns with symptom control we would involve um, our colleagues. So you mentioned in part of that anticipatory care planning and that's one of the threads we've talked about in, in this whole Talking Mortality series. In your experience Helen, why is anticipatory care planning important? important and in particularly relation to the patients that you're involved with? Um, so I think it's really important and it fits with realistic medicine which is what we're being encouraged to practice more um, which is essentially being open with patients and their families about uh, the person's health problems, potential 
uh, future problems and giving them more of a voice to, to, to talk about their, their ideas and concerns and expectations. It doesn't mean that they'll dictate what will happen because we obviously have med- medical expertise and we'd, we'd hope to guide them, but it's, it's just about opening that conversation up and and an honesty with it and like I've said if you've got advanced frailty your life expectancy isn't good and that person deserves to know that and to be able to make plans and um, I think it's important that when when people come into hospital we have these open discussions so that they, they know where we're at and also for the future for them they can they can have that planning. Sure and how have you found um having those conversations and having that open, honest conversation with people who are perhaps at the severe end of frailty and perhaps their life expectancy is now limited? So I I, I think uh, ACPs are hugely important. We use them day to day. We use them in most of our patients, um, but they're not without challenges. And because of frailty and uh, cognitive issues, so a lot of our patients will have a delirium, so acute confusional state, or dementia, so they won't necessarily have capacity. That can make things more complicated, and uh, we can re- we have to rely on family to, to speak in, in, on their behalf. And sometimes family dynamics are complicated, where different family members have different mm-hmm. opinions and things. Also, we, it can, it's not unusual that you'll have a conversation with someone around anticipated care planning and it comes as a shock to them and their family members, especially in the context of frailty, like I've said, if maybe it's not been addressed head on. So it's the first conversation they've had around, um, you know, the fact they might not have much time ahead and um, and, what, and, we, and we say we, we maybe wouldn't um, want to, 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 to go down the route of certain investigations which we think would be futile, but... but the, the person can maybe take it the wrong way and think that we've written them off and, that yes, you know, no, and there's no, a trust no. aspect so that can happen um, but more often than not um, people ha- feel have already have had thoughts on this mm-hmm. if not discussions yeah. and, and, and are often in agreement and, and it's quite a natural conversation mm-hmm. but you know we can get caught out and I think the main way would be to avoid getting caught out is to try and have discussions earlier on, um, ideally not in hospital, because in hospital it's when things have re- reached crisis point mm-hmm. and it's often not the right time really. Um, and uh, ideally, you know, conversations start earlier mm-hmm. and having had the, the benefit of, of doing hospital at home and having conversations at home, I've realised something that the, the another benefit of, of not discussing things in hospital is that the power dynamics may be more in their favour because in hospital, irrespective of how you try and have these discussions, it's hard that the doctor maybe doesn't lead the conversation and they can and the per, the patient maybe doesn't have as much of a voice. Whereas if you have discussions in the community and especially in the person's own home maybe gives them more of a voice which can only be a good thing yeah so you would advocate having a conversation of that nature earlier and the earlier the better yes possibly maybe once it's recognized that that frailty is, is an issue that maybe having a discussion about preferences and wishes exactly. for the future would be a good idea in your experience again helen whenever you do ask those questions about what's important to that individual and what they want what their expectations are how's that gone in your experience um, what the people want, I suppose. Sure. So, yeah, the, the majority of people um, want good quality time out of hospital. 
want to get home. It's, it's not rocket yes. science. They, they want they want to be in uh, in their familiar environment with their loved ones uh, and feeling as well as they can to enjoy that time. Um, so it, so that's why it's usually quite a natural conversation because that's what you'd expect and that is the, the vast majority of the time how to achieve that can be the difficult thing sometimes and it's and it's about having um, the, the community services and the, all the you know the integration um, to, of health and social care to, to allow that to happen for that to work you know mm. to work well Do, uh, have you got any examples maybe perhaps in, in, in your work in the past every day so uh, a typical patient would be someone I've got in my rehab ward just now who, who is uh, elderly, frail, who's come in with falls and um, has fractured a hip. He's also been found to be anemic and have an abnormal chest x-ray, so that's suggestive of a malignancy. So um, at the, in, in the initial stages, the management is of his hip and he has mm-hmm. had surgery and is improving, but there's obviously other issues happening and potentially he, he does have something sinister. By, by having a conversation with the patient who was able to give his own opinions alongside his family, I could talk about the acute things, so what's happened with his hip, his pain control, rehabilitation, but also we've had a chat about the other, the other longer-term condition, conditions um, that have maybe put risk of this hip fracture, the potential that there might be something sinister like a malignancy, a cancer, um, and what what I would think would and wouldn't be appropriate, and how he feels about that, and it, it, it just it saves it saves time and it saves inappropriate, um, potentially harmful uh, investigations like CT scans and bronchoscopies that are not going to change the outcome. And so what we're doing is we're controlling his pain, we're giving him iron to replace his, um, to help boost his, his anemia and and focusing on getting him strong enough for home with appropriate support. And I will communicate all of this to primary care and say we've, we've, we've done this. If he becomes more unwell, which he'd be keen to try and avoid admission, there's these alternatives, including hospital home, that might be appropriate. Um, if his blood count continues to drop, what might be an appropriate plan? We he doesn't want, and we would agree further investigation into his cancer, just because that communication is really important to prevent someone else getting involved who doesn't aware these conversations okay. we yeah. had and yeah. start doing unnecessary tests. Sure. So in that kind of situation, when you when you have that conversation, you're talking about well, it might be something sinister here, but if we go down that line, we're going to be subjecting you to a whole range of investigations that might be sore and yeah. invasive and maybe not ultimately change things. And, and do you find that that people understand that when you put it in that, in that frame that you're saying, well, let's talk about what we are going to do rather than what we're not going to do? Exactly. And a, a lot of the time they say, I wouldn't want these things. So the, someone like this gentleman will not be a candidate for chemotherapy, radiotherapy, surgery, even if, even if he or we wanted that for him. But actually a lot of the time the patient wouldn't want either. They can see they maybe don't have a lot of time ahead, and they don't want to prolong things and and add, you know, additional harm. So very often it's quite a, a, a natural discussion. We both yeah. come to the same conclusion, yeah. Yeah. and like you said, focusing on what we can what we can do to improve things. Um, this would be a sort of patient I would 
try and uh, cut back on medications um, as much as I can and really minimise what he's taking so that it's just the things that are going to make him yeah, feel better. Yeah. And also often that improves compliance actually because... Yeah, sure. I guess the risk would be if he hadn't had that conversation he could have been down a, a whole different avenue of investigations and yes. scans and yes. treatments and so Which forth. Which maybe but used to happen more, but I think um, I'm really encouraged day to day by not only my peer elderly colleagues, but um, in other specialties, these conversations are being had earlier and there's there's undoubtedly a reduction in Great. unnecessary yeah. investigation yeah. interventions happening. Yeah. So that open, honest, realistic conversation makes a huge difference. Exactly. Great. Well, that's brilliant. I think it just uh, just brings us towards just the end, and I just want to ask you: just if, um, do you think there's something else that we need to do as a wider healthcare organisation to improve care that we can deliver for our frail patients? Yes. Yeah, so this is the million-dollar question. So um, integration of health and social care came into effect in 2016, and the idea was to try and improve, improve services for people by joining up care better, joining up services and focusing on anticipatory care and preventive care. So it fits with realistic medicine and um, its aims are 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 very good and it's it, and it's something um, I think we'd all agree with. But unfortunately the reality um, day to day is that often we see people admitted to hospital who are obviously on this downward trajectory and who have have hit crisis point which is often social and they're admitted and um, when we look at things actually there's been opportunities here to preempt some of this decline and maybe prevent this admission um, but it just really exemplifies an overstretched service where there's just so many older frailer people in, in, in hospitals and in the community and, and how, how better to, to join up care. Um, another area where there's, there's definite gaps is in is social care. So we'll have uh, people in hospital who we've assessed who need care packages or maybe need to go to a care home because no, their needs can't be met at home. And they could wait for a really long time in hospital and that can be detrimental because they can go through all the, the effects I spoke about earlier that are, yeah. are so negative yeah. for older people. Yeah. So these are people that are ready to go home. Exactly. Your and they can be weeks yeah. or months waiting and yeah. maybe they don't have a lot of time ahead, so that can be a long time. Yeah. Um, so that that's um, you know that's, that's another pressure, and th- th- there's just not enough uh, social care there. Um, but however, on a more positive note, and like I've said, I think there's a lot of in my, in my relatively short time as a care of the elderly consultant, I've seen a lot of good work and a lot of um, proactive um, uh, thoughts about uh, managing frail older people by a range of healthcare professionals and. Um, more of a focus on realistic medicine which yeah. can only be a good thing so. excellent excellent well, I think that's a, a really good good point just to draw to a close I just want to thank you so much for your for your time and sharing your experience and expertise this afternoon thank My you pleasure. so much okay. thank you okay so let's just spend a moment reviewing some of our discussion there frailty is a health state characterized by loss of reserve leaving an effective individual more vulnerable to life stressors This can result in things like susceptibility to infection, decreased mobility due to muscle weakness, or becoming more socially withdrawn. Patients in the more severe end of frailty are more likely to end up in hospital. As Helen outlined, this is not always a great place to be if you're frail and elderly, with increased risk of hospital-acquired infection, delirium, and weight loss. 
Unless a particular treatment or intervention can only be delivered in a hospital, it's often best to care for a patient in their own home. And the work that Helen and others in the hospital at home team have done is a great example of what can be achieved with this model of care. A time will come when a severely frail patient is approaching the end of life. Helen recommends having a conversation about care preferences well in advance of a final illness, as this makes it more likely that deterioration towards death won't come as a shock or surprise, and appropriate plans or provisions can be put in place. Knowing the answer to the question, what matters to you, or what are the important things in life to you, can be really important here. So that's it for this episode of Talking Mortality. I hope you've enjoyed it. As ever, feedback would be greatly appreciated. And if you have any follow-up questions, you could send them to me on Twitter at CJBlue72 underscore. Thank you and have a good day. Mm-hmm.